This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. I'm talking today with Dr. Robert Hellyer, Associate Professor in the Department of History at Wake Forest University and a Hakuho Research Fellow at the International Research Center for Japanese Studies. Dr. Hellyer is the author most recently of Quality as a Moving Target, Japanese Tea, Consumer Preference, and Federal Regulation on the U.S. Market. Dr. Hellyer, thank you for talking with me today. It's my pleasure. Currently, you're researching this global history of Japan's tea export trade and looking at tea from this socioeconomic perspective, looking at commodity and global flows and trade. Can you tell us what's happening in the Meiji period and, and where tea fits into this global commodity flow? Well, the title of my book that I'm currently completing is An American Cup of Green Tea Made in Japan. And I chose that title because I wanted to look at both sides of a trade that was extremely important to Meiji Japan. Beginning after the Meiji Restoration, the three most important exports for Japan were silk, tea, and coal. And so I wanted to look at that trade. There's been wonderful research by economic historians in considering how that trade contributed to Japan's larger push towards industrialization. My interest, as you mentioned, is the socioeconomic perspective. And I really wanted to look as, as much as I can about the people in both Japan and the United States that are involved in the trade. And on the Japanese side, what is important uh, about the trade, first of all, perhaps in a, one of the global perspectives, is that Japan is the first state to challenge China's world monopoly of the tea market. And Japan starts to export right after the treaty ports are established in 1859. But the Westerners who are in Nagasaki or in Yokohama who are starting out the trade are interested in where they can sell Japanese green tea most of all, and that is to the U.S. market. And so what I've been looking at here is, coming back to the Japanese side, is the development of the trade that, first of all, is interesting that it's a, a local efforts starting in the 1870s, places like Sayama in Saitama, still an important producing region, Kochi in Shikoku, and then most notably Shizuoka. Shizuoka had been a tea-producing nation, a region, in the Edo period. But here we have then the creation of this, of being much more tea production in Shizuoka, and it's all directed for the export market. These local efforts to create an industry uh, that's going to benefit the people in these distinct areas. And what's also important in the development of this trade is it's a way to smooth over the tensions, the battles that have been taking place in the 1860s, and then also the ruptures that have taken place because of Meiji reforms. And so, for example, what I'm looking at in the Shizuoka case is how many of, and, and this, this core area of production in Shizuoka, Makinohara, we have many former retainers of the Tokugawa who move there and become tea farmers. So in thinking about then how this trade plays out, it's a part of the development of the Japanese nation state. One question that I uh, came to mind was, what was the role of the Meiji state in promoting certain commodities such as tea or coal? Were there certain policies that the Meiji state was, was doing? Or, or what is the relationship between the local and the state level in these trade exports? Sure. 
The short answer is that right after the Meiji Restoration, the Meiji government's role is limited. And that's come back to where I've found that, for example, in Shizuoka, the support for these ex-Tokugawa retainers that are coming in is from the Tokugawa house or from Shizuoka domain that becomes Shizuoka prefecture. It's only really when we get into the mid to late 1870s that the Meiji state becomes much more involved in what's going on and its role is important. And I was thinking in particular, kind of the infrastructure for export goods. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, think like the development of the railway system in particular, the train line up to Mito uh, so that they can more quickly export coal from Mito or, or even the train line into Nagano or Shizuoka, which I guess that would be good for the silk and tea industries, right? Uh, yes, uh, certainly. And then into the 1890s, the development of the rail lines and then the connection to Shimizu, which is a port. I mean, now it's part of, of Shizuoka City. But from 1899, uh, Shimizu is opened as a trading port, and the tea trade really shifts to there, the export trade. Uh, and Shizuoka becomes the real center of it. Previously, she had the exports going through Yokohama or through Kobe, and the first part of the Bakamatsu through Nagasaki. But yes, the, the development of the infrastructure is, is very important. So if it's not the state actors, and it, you're, as you're saying, it's much more of these kind of local efforts. So what are some of the things that are happening on the local levels to really promote this industry? Well, you have, for example, in the case of Sayama, uh, an interesting attempt by a man from the region who goes to New York in the 1870s and tries to set up shop. But he lacks capital. He lacks connections. And this is also then one of the very interesting things about the tea trade is that you have all these local groups that are working to promote it, but the control of the tea trade from the port when it's shipped and then on the American market is by large Western firms based in, in Kobe, Yokohama, and then in Shizuoka. So those efforts to create and create a direct trade was one of the, the goals of the Japanese merchants in these local areas, but it, it, was, it was stymied really until into the 20th century. And you mentioned that one of the things that's significant about the Japanese tea trade is that Japan's really the first market to challenge China as the producer of tea. And a lot of it's going to the United States. So is it that the American consumer is just looking for cheaper tea? No, it's because the Americans like green tea. Soon after America gained independence from Britain, Americans came to prefer green tea over black tea, seeing it as a more sophisticated beverage. And so therefore, this is another thing that's, that's interesting about the Japanese case, is that because these Western merchants identify the U.S. market, they set up the trade there. And I should note here, I, I haven't done as much research about it, but Canada was also very much a green tea consuming nation into the late 19th century. And so here I am as an American. Uh, my book is more focused on the U.S., but uh, I don't want to leave out uh, uh, Canada in this story. Uh, but I, I say that because with my limited research on it, but it is uh, very significant. So the export of, of tea would have been 70% or so, 80% uh, to the United States, and then another 10 or 15% going to Canada of Japanese green tea. Using tea as perhaps this kind of window on, onto Japanese relations with the outside world during the Meiji period, what do we learn about Japan's place in the world economy? Well, first, I'd like to emphasize then about how much for Japan to become involved in the world economy, it has to learn from China. And the role of Chinese experts 
in the development of the tea trade is fundamentally important. This is because the Western merchants that I mentioned a couple times, they're men in their early 20s. They don't know about exporting tea at industrial scale. And they hire Japanese staff who also do not have the knowledge to export tea on an industrial scale. So within these Western export firms in, say, Yokohama, you have the skilled staff is being Chinese. So this international role of this trade, and I'm echoing some of the points that have made by economic historians of Japan in looking at the development of, of Japan's various export trades, of how much they, they depend on Chinese know-how in developing various trades, exports to North America or to Asia as well. In the post-war period, when we talk about Japan's economic miracle, of course, the, one of the big narratives is, is this a result of state actions, you know, the, the kind of midi miracle idea? And then there's the other argument, well, no, it's mainly because of private enterprise and, and kind of local know-how. Can we cast that same narrative onto the Meiji period? And if we do so, what would be the answer? What makes it thrive during this time period? Well, if pushed, I would say the local know-how, the local initiatives. But later on, the Meiji state in taking a, a much larger hand in trying to develop the trade. And one of the important things that the Meiji state does is push for the development of a national tea merchant association, which is focused on, for example, trying to assure better quality teas that are being exported, but then also sharing information, sharing know how, creating an experimental station in Shizuoka. In the, I think it's in, in the 1890s is when they set that up to develop new strands of tea or to develop better types of tea that they might be able to export. So that that would be my uh, seeing as both. Uh, it's both this local initiative, but then also the the Meiji state's role is so significant as well. And so the state kind of has model industry approach, just like they did with, say, railways or, or silk manufacturing or shipping. Right. And one of the big examples where the state involvement is from the mid-1870s, there's a push to develop black tea production as well to diversify the exports. And Australia is targeted as a potential export market. And some black tea is produced. Again, Chinese experts are brought in here to teach about refining techniques of black tea. But it's not successful, uh, number one, because the quality, as judged by Australians, is not that high. But then also from the 1880s is what I like to call the black tea wave, which is swept first across Britain in 1865. 98% of the tea is Chinese. Fast forward 20 years, you have upwards of 60% is Indian black tea. India and Ceylon production booms dramatically in the 1880s and 1890s. It changes first Britain, it changes Australia, and then later changes the United States to black tea consuming nations. How long does tea remain one of Japan's most profitable exports? Uh, It's certainly profitable until the start of the Pacific War in 1941. But into the 1920s, the American market really fades from significance because of the dominance of India and Ceylon black teas on the market. So there's an effort to try and diversify to sell to more to the empire, to sell to North Africa. And those are successful to a degree. But the really big days of the trade are in the late 19th and early 20th century.
recently you've also hosted a number of conferences interrogating the sesquicentennial of the Meiji Restoration. So could you describe for us some of the goals you had in mind, some of the designs, and some of the outcomes from those conferences? Sure. I've been doing this project for several years along with Danny Botsman at Yale and Harold Fuss at Heidelberg in Germany. And we set out just to try and look at as many ways as we can at the Meiji Restoration in advance of the sesquicentennial. Now, here we are in 2018. But we started with a conference that I organized at my home institution at Wake Forest in North Carolina. And my biggest goal, I think about how I could connect the story of the Meiji Restoration or accounts of it to local North Carolina history. And of course, here we have in North Carolina was a part of the Confederacy. And we've seen it played out more dramatically in late 2017 that we see then the Civil War in many ways still being reinterpreted, being fought, if you will, in North Carolina. So what I thought to do was to make that local connection, but then also try and focus on an area of the Meiji Restoration, which hadn't been covered as much in English. And this was the conflicts of the 1860s, notably the, the Boshin Senso, the Boshin War, and then also the Satsuma Rebellion. And fortunately, we were able to bring together, uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get as much about the Satsuma Rebellion, but that was my main goal, and to try and find ways to use that comparative approach to, to think more broadly about the Meiji Restoration. I mean, that's fascinating to note the, the similarity and kind of the, the revisiting of the Civil War in the current day, especially regarding the statue issues. And so it's useful to think about these historical moments. So from the Japan perspective, why is it useful now to remember the Meiji Restoration? What lessons does the Meiji Restoration have for Japan today? I will answer that in one of the conclusions and one of the topics that we had at the Wake Forest Conference was thinking about reconciliation after a, a period of internal conflict. And one of the things that struck me about thinking of the Japanese case is here we have a bitter civil war in 68 and 69, but even before that, you're having throughout the 1860s, can be seen as a, as a period of, of really bitter internal conflicts. But yet we have, within the 1870s, remarkably the creation of this nation state. And so how did this happen? How did it work out? And so this is one of the things that we're looking at at the, at the Meiji Conference or at the Wake Forest Conference and thinking about, and I'll just come back to one of the things that I had mentioned earlier in my own research about the fact of these local groups that see a need of, for example, these samurai that have lost their positions. They can be rehabilitated. But it's not only the samurai, it's also in the case of Shizuoka, the Meiji government builds new infrastructure across the Oi River, which during the Edo period had not been, a bridge had been purposely not built across it to maintain it as a military barrier to Edo. And so you had then guilds, well, you build a bridge, all these people and their families that are employed here lose out. And here we have a wealthy man in Shizuoka sees this need and he gives seed money that allows then these families to become tea farmers, to play a role in the Meiji state. And to me, that's one of the things that came out from my, my conference was learning about how remarkable that was in comparison to the, to the American case, where you do not have these efforts from the North to try and give economic consolation, if you will, to those former Confederate soldiers. And in fact, you have in the American case then 
the return in many ways of the old regime that we had. And I don't want to diverge here too much on, on the American case. But to answer, if I can, your, your larger question, why is it important? Here we have today this return of focus on the nation state. And certainly, even a decade ago, we, we heard so much about how international communities, multinational corporations, scholars looking into global history wanted to de-emphasize the importance of the nation state as a story. And I, I support that impulse completely. But here we have today this with Brexit, with America first. Here we can see in Italy then talking about, well, maybe we, we need to question our role in the EU. To come back to this larger point, why is the Meiji Restoration important? It's to talk and think about this development and creation of the nation state, because it, it seems to be that this is, this is the model of our world system that we continue to have. This theme of the creation of the nation state after the Meiji Restoration, is this one of the themes you introduce in your classroom when you're teaching about modern Japanese history? Uh, yes, very much so. One of the examples that I use is to try and have students think about the transition from being a subject in the Edo period, where you have this identification as a feudal subject with a lord and talking about how you know samurai are connected to their lord in a personal way, and how different that is from being a citizen in the state. For example, when the Meiji regime wants to create citizens that are educated and involved in the state. So that, that's one example. What are some other pedagogical approaches that you use in your classroom, or maybe some other themes that you use to introduce the Meiji period? What I've been trying recently on, again, trying as much as I can with a comparative perspective. For example, I've always been interested in Oshio Heihachiro and his story about, you know, why does he decide to try and incite this rebellion is so interesting and, and similar to me in the case of, of John Brown, who was this abolitionist, anti-slavery activist, uh, you know, who tried to start a rebellion in Virginia in the late 1850s. So using, for example, that there's a, a one-page text, it's, it's been translated in English, about Oshio's goals, and then John Brown had a similar text that he, he wrote. So I've, I've used those in comparison, and I think that's very useful. Other individuals looked at and talked about the Meiji period, um, Kato Shizue, who was a woman from a very wealthy family where her husband uh, worked in a, in a mine in Kyushu and then became a very important activist in the birth control movement. So I've used her, her text as someone of a story of Meiji and then beyond as, as, as real focal points of how to try and, and think about the Meiji Restoration or the Meiji period in general. One question that I that I ask a lot of the guests on the podcast, is 1868 a meaningful date, or are we making too much of this date? And, and it's always interesting to hear how people react to this question. So I'm curious, what, what do you think of this? I think absolutely it's, it's meaningful. It is a significant moment in the fact of how much changes after 1868. I mean, one of the people that I focus on in my research on tea is a man named Tadamoto Kichi. You know, he starts out his life as a very low-ranking Bakfu retainer in Chiba, 
ends up moving to Edo, living a pretty simple life. Then he's brought into fighting in the Boshin War. And then afterwards, at age 40, he becomes a tea farmer. He succeeds in it, and he ends up being sent as a low-ranking bureaucrat to China and India to study about the tea trade. And he retires as Shizuoka. I mean, that, that life is so different than what you had in the Edo period, where there have been much more continuity. So I think it, he, he represents a story to me to think about that rupture that's taking place here. But I, I guess also, too, I worked with a, a colleague, political scientist, to, to write an op-ed about the Meiji Restoration. And we were, wanted to do it on January 3rd. And putting that together, that in Japan, there is no date to remember. I mean, obviously, there's no Bastille Day, I mean, equivalent to Bastille Day or July 4th along those lines. So it, I mean, these are one of the things about studying the Meiji Restoration. It, it just keeps, you learn, the more you learn, the more it keeps puzzling you. It, it's, such, it's such an intriguing event in so many ways about what, how it transpired, but then also how we remember it as well. Now, I'm curious also, since you said you, you do a lot of comparative, it sounds like you're bringing in a lot of uh, United States history uh, into your presentation of Japanese history as well. So when you're presenting on the restoration in particular, what place does the West have in this restoration in your classroom? Mm. Well, one of the things that I'm always challenged is my students come in learning in high school about Commodore Perry and about Japan as being closed and then being opened in the Meiji period. And trying to complicate that narrative of Perry's significance, number one, and then the open and closed dynamic is one of the biggest things that I do. And it's not just related to Japan. And so to answer your question, what I do is try and go backwards a little bit to, to mention drawing in on, on global history and thinking about how then the dominance of China's economy until 1800 and trying to build that context, uh, the context of the fact that for example, the Europeans would limit those who could trade overseas. Isn't that and, and ask the students to think about how that's a similarity to the Edo period system. So that's one of the biggest things that I'm 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 really challenged to try and have the students consider in that global perspective and move away if I can then as well. I guess for a third thing is just to have them say that it's all about then that they learn about the West and they become like the West, and then therefore they succeed, um, that there's much more going on uh, within this story. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.